I'm going to give you the most disgusting illustration I've ever given to start a message this morning. And for that, I need this little illustration right here. I had a pillow when I was growing up. This pillow went with me everywhere. It was very comfortable. It was like better than the my pillow thing. I mean, it was like quality stuff. I had it actually growing up. It was the only pillow I ever used. My mom suggested I switch pillows. I did not because I had my pillow. See, I came up with the idea before the my pillow guy came up with the idea. My pillow went with me everywhere I went. When I got in to be a teenager, I even would travel and go, you know, I got a car and I had some freedom. Sometimes I would go cross country to visit people and I would actually take my pillow in my car. I'd sleep with my pillow wherever I was. When I went to college, guess what I took with me? I took my pillow with me to college, put it in my suitcase. There was stuff that I couldn't bring because I was traveling to New York to go to school, but I stuffed my pillow in my suitcase. What I didn't realize is that you should probably switch your pillow every once in a while. It's not only healthy, it's also probably, uh, yeah, it, it's probably just nice for other, other people in your life when you switch your pillow. My pillow turned different colors. It, turned, it was white, and I don't ever remember it being white because by the time I actually learned to love my pillow, it was a little bit yellow. And then it turned into a brown, and then beyond that, it went to a color that I don't think there actually is a definition for this color after that. My pillow went with me everywhere that I went. When I got married, I took my pillow to bed with me. <laughs> Beth is not here, and she would love this illustration. And so I'm, I'm going to elaborate with her not being here. I took my pillow to bed with me, and Beth said, that is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And I said, be careful, that's my pillow. That has been with me my whole life. Ever since I was a young boy, I've carried my pillow with me, and now that I'm married and with you, it will stay with me. It is literally a part of me at this point. Our dog, which we bought and my wife loved, got sick one day. And so Beth felt terrible for our dog because our dog had to sleep on the floor, on the floor downstairs because the dog wasn't feeling well and different things were coming out of the dog. So the dog had to be on the concrete floor. My wife felt badly about putting the dog downstairs on the concrete floor. So when I was away, my wife went to our bed and took my pillow off of the bed and gave it to the dog. The dog laid on my pillow. The dog made friends with my pillow. The dog did things to my pillow that I have not done to my pillow, and the dog became one with my pillow. I didn't want to take my pillow back after that because the dog had kind of taken over. When I got home, I, I said to Beth, I said, where's my pillow? I'm going to bed, where's my pillow? I gave it to the dog. That was the first major dispute we had in our marriage because she gave something I loved and cherished. I protected and was a part of me. She gave it to the dog, and it became the dog's pillow. Couldn't believe she would be so callous with something I loved so dearly. What I didn't understand at the time is that that pillow was actually a tether to my past. I didn't realize it at the time, but the, one of the reasons I love that pillow so much is because no matter what changes happen in my life, the pillow remained the same. Every night I could put my head on the pillow, it was my pillow. It was the pillow I grew up with. And no matter what changed in my life, my pillow was comfortable and it always remained the same. And when Beth gave my pillow to the dog, I became somewhat irrational. To be offered a pillow like this after laying on that thing for 10, 15 years, you'd think would make somebody very happy, but it didn't to me. Instead, it made me kind of ticked off because my pillow, which was now an indescribable color, was no longer my pillow. Something comfortable for me, something, something genuinely precious to me was ripped away from me, and I was... I was ticked. 
I learned to love that pillow for all the wrong reasons. And you're probably sitting here thinking, that is an irrational experience. That is an irrational love. And I would say to you, by the way, after laying on clean pillows that aren't all smooshed and messed up, I would agree with you. Although some pillows are not as good as others, I will have to say that. I've been planning to do this series for some time, to talk to you about this one particular series that we're going to get to do together over the rest of the summer together. Uh, it'll take us about to the middle of August. This is a, a message, that, a series that I'm going to do on the church. Each church family is unique. Different ways of doing things, different passions. Some churches are big on discipleship, so they're like discipleship-making, disciple-making churches. Other churches are involved with the community. They're socially active churches. We just sent around a questionnaire. You've received a questionnaire, hopefully, at this point. Uh, again, our questionnaire went to both churches, Fellowship and, and, uh, and Village, because we're doing summer together, and I'd encourage you to fill out that questionnaire. Three simple questions on it. We're, we're interested to get some feedback on that, but one particular feedback that came to us, which I really enjoyed reading, somebody described their love for Fellowship because it was a family church. So they described this church as a family church. To be fair, somebody from Village Church called Village, and I love Village Church because we're an outreach church. And it's interesting, as I read these responses, how people ex experienced and learned to love different parts of what a church does. Some churches, like, they highlight these things. Have you ever heard of a seeker-sensitive church? Well, that's something that they, they make every service, everything in the service friendly and welcoming to people that may never heard of Jesus before. And so they become a seeker-sensitive church. But as important as, and by the way, these are not all bad. It's just interesting how we describe the things we love about church. As important as these things might be to a local church, they are simply not what the church actually is. They are just things we love about our church. There's one church that Jesus died for, and it wasn't village only, and it wasn't fellowship only. It is his church, universal, existing across the globe, in time, in space. It is a moment of history where the church exists, and he died for that church. So it doesn't matter if it was 100 years ago or a thousand years ago or a thousand years in the future for around that long. Jesus loves the church. And all churches look different. They have different things that they love. They have different passions. It's just that some people have a, a different reason. They are clinging, clinging like a pillow. They're clinging to their particular church. The danger is this. When a congregation loves anything, including what makes them unique or lovable, more than they love their God-given mission, that church will fail. So, churches need to be constantly checking themselves. Are we what God expects us to be? Or are we clinging to things that we love about the church, which isn't bad, but are those things, those loves becoming irrational? All right, so I've admitted to you my, my youth of irrationability, my, my clinging to something that just didn't make sense. And there's a guy in the New Testament that needed some help understanding what he needs to love about the church as well. And his name was Pastor Timothy. Now, Timothy got two books named after him. And it's not because he was such an outstanding pastor. It was actually because he needed a lot of help. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are letters written by the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy, who was pastoring a church in a city called Ephesus. And Pastor Timothy was young and needed some help to understand how to keep the essential things of the church essential and not get lost in the melee. Now, you should know this about Ephesus. Ephesus was a growing, influential 
city. Think, well, I was going to say Chicago, but Chicago's kind of on, on the, I think there's like a family leaving Chicago every 10 minutes. So let me just not use that. Uh, let me use a, a different city. So if a city is up and coming, that would be Ephesus. Up and coming, it was a port city. It was very, very influential in its day. And Pastor Timothy was the pastor of one of the largest growing new churches of his day. Like every growing organization, Timothy needed some help to get through some of the challenges he would face. And he, he was in danger of getting off the main things. So Paul the Apostle writes to him, and this is where we'll start. If you're using your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 1, <coughs> if you want to follow on the screen, you're welcome to do that as well. Here's how 1 Timothy 1 begins. This is how the letter begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Letters in Scripture are like upside down for us. When we write a letter, we put our name at the first or at the last? Yeah, we put it at the end, right? Love, Craig. Well, at the beginning is the way that they would write their letters. So Paul, the apostle, writes to Timothy, starting his letter as we would finish ours. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul had actually pastored Ephesus before Timothy. Paul had spent some time doing pastoral work as the church began going, as the church was established, and Paul wants to pass this church on to a capable pastor. He chooses Timothy. Paul was going on to do more missionary work, and he leaves Ephesus in his, eye, in his mind in capable hands, and that would be Timothy. He calls him my true child. Now, to understand this, <clears throat> we have a couple of different words that describe children, right? We call them kids. We call them children. We call them son. We call them daughter. We have different names for children, right? They did in Greek as well. One of the words is weos. Now, weos is how you would refer to an adult son, all right? So if I had Abby here, I would call her my, my uh, whatever the female version of weos is. She would be my adult daughter. This is not the word Paul uses. Paul uses the word technon. That doesn't mean anything to you other than to say this. Paul calls Timothy his own birthed child, his literal child in the faith. Paul has a connection. It literally means a child or a born one. Timothy and Paul have this connection that is much like a parent and a son. Timothy's own father was likely not a Christian. Timothy came to faith in Jesus Christ through his mother and his grandmother. That's, again, in Scripture. And as Paul is nearing the end of the ministry, I think Paul looks at Timothy and says, you know, Timothy, you need a dad. I think I'm the guy to fill the bill. Paul was like a father concerned that Timothy was in a situation that is going to stretch him beyond belief. And he writes this letter like a father to a son that's going through some serious stress issues. Have you ever gone through a stress issue and your parent came to you and said to you, son or daughter, I'd like to give you some advice. <laughs> You're going through some really tough times right now, and I'm going to help you through it. This is why Paul writes to Timothy. We know this because 1 Timothy is full of a few key phrases over and over and over again. If you read through 1 Timothy, you'll come across a few phrases that Paul continually uses, and they are usually something like, I urge you, or I compel you, or I exhort you. These are all words that Paul, because he's kind of like a dad to Timothy, Paul looks at Timothy and says, listen, I'm trying to tell you this is what you need to do. And my, my dad and I had a great relationship. And my dad would always give me advice. He was a very good advice giver. I loved sitting, I'd give anything to have a conversation with my dad again like that. 
My dad, when he was alive, he would sit down with me, and he, every conversation, if, if he knew I needed some prodding or some pushing, his conversations would always start with, <clears throat> okay, Craig, here's what you need to do. <laughs> and then he'd fill in the blank afterwards. This is how Paul talks to Timothy. This charge or this exhort, parakaleo, parangelo, if you don't care anything about Greek, these words are really interesting because they're like what a dad would say to a son who needs some serious advice to get through some challenging times. Literally, what he's doing is he's using these words that a commander trans- transfers through the ranks. This is the same word. If a commander gives a general information and the general gives the captain information and the captain gives the soldiers information, it is always this way. I urge you, I commend you, I exhort you. This is the way Paul talks to Timothy. Paul is passing down advice, a message, truth of God through the ranks. Paul saw it, I think, like from Sinai to us today in Carroll Stream, we are commended to pass on truth. We are, we are urged, we are exhorted to do the same. The prophets protected the message and passed it down. Jesus took the message and transferred his disciples. God transferred the message to Paul. Paul was entrusting the message to Timothy, and Timothy was meant to entrust the message to the church. This is like a, a delivery of ranks. And we know this because one of my favorite verses in Scripture is 2T22. You want to say that with me? Here we go. 2T22. 2 Timothy 2.2. You know what it says? What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men slash women who will be able to teach others also. The ranks. Paul is very aware that the message of God needed to be protected and guarded and pure, delivered in a pure way, and that needed to be going through the ranks. In fact, charge or urge is used over a dozen times in this one letter. The first two are right here in verse 3. Look at what it says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies with which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. This is the first charge. Now, if you're talking to your son or your daughter, if you have kids, or if you're talking to a young person, if you don't have kids, but you're trying to give them advice, you usually have a reason to start engaging them in conversation. Chances are whatever you say first is the reason you're having the conversation to begin with. This is the first thing Paul says to his son, Timothy, in the faith, the son in the faith. Remain at Ephesus, which, which kind of begs the question, did Timothy want to leave? Church work is very challenging. <laughs> and sometimes when you do church work, it creates frustration. Paul, I wonder, was thinking, is Timothy getting ready to leave town? I don't know. We're never told. But all we're told is the first thing that Paul says to him is, stay put. And the natural question at this point is, why? Why, Paul, would you tell Timothy to stay at Ephesus? And the answer is because there are certain people trying to teach a different doctrine and selling a different truth. It's right there in Scripture. He says, I charge you, stay in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. Timothy was to stay put because there were challenges in the church. Some people were trying to sell stuff that was not the gospel or that was tacked on to the gospel. Why is this first charge so important? Why is it so important to Paul that he would put it right at the front end of his letter? And I think it's found in the main verse. And just so you know, if you're looking through 1 Timothy, the main verse of 1 Timothy is 1 Timothy 
This is kind of the crux of it. Here's what it says. I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul again writing to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of what church? A pillar and a buttress of truth. If you feel like you live in a world that's struggling to find the truth, you're probably living in a world where the church has forgotten to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. He wants to cover these things in person, but he might get held up. So he writes the letter to Timothy. Paul says, in case I don't get together with you, it's really important for you to understand how the church functions together. Buttress. Do you know what a buttress means? We don't use that word anymore. I like that word. What do you think of when you hear the word buttress? Like a, like a solid holding back wall, a foundation, right? A buttress. It's kind of like, like you throw a bunch of stuff up to keep the water from getting in. The word actually is hedramai. It simply means a fortification structure. It's like something you build so strong that no matter what comes at it, it is impenetrable. It is a buttress. I also love that the church is a buttress of truth, and he describes it as a household. It's not a building. It's not wooden mortar. The church is people. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, the church, the household of the living God is meant to be a buttress of truth in a world of lies. The corporate local assembly, this family is a pillar and the buttress of real truth in a world that just keeps lying. Why is this so important? I'm still, I'm still like, okay, I understand the reason for it, but why is this first? Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's the key verse for us this morning. Number five. The aim of our charge, remember, this is a charge. This is an exhort, I exhort you, I charge you, I urge you. Paul says to Timothy, the aim of this charge is what, church? Oh, come on. You could, you could say it louder than this. Jesus, Jesus was big on this word too. The aim of our charge is love. Love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the aim, the first, the very most important charge that we can receive as a church passed on from, Timothy, or from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to, to, to faithful workers, and from those faithful workers through time, it lands in our lap in Carol Stream. We, the church, are meant to be a pillar and buttress of truth. Why? So that we can love with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That means love is genuine. Integrity in our confession. We have a pure heart. That means we are who we say we are. We don't come to church and we're one person and we go home and we're another person. If that's the case, this church is what we're all, this building is what we're all about. If you change when you come into the building, that's weird. (laughs) That's just weird. We are integrity filled. That means we have a, 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 Integrity in our pure heart, it means we are who we say we are. Whether we're in this structure or Fountain View structure or a structure at home or a structure at our workplace, (laughs) we have a pure heart. We are who we say we are. We have a good conscience. We live and we promote God's instructions, God's definition of righteousness in a world that desperately needs to hear it. We have a good conscience because we live out the principles of God. Jesus said it very well. If you love me, you will... Oh, have you read this? If you love me, you will... You will obey my commandments. It's incredible to me because that means we have a good conscience. 
When we come into the, into the presence of God, we enter with a good conscience. We love. We love with a good conscience. And the last thing is sincere faith. We believe the right things. We have a firm foundation upon which we build our hope. We have a sincere faith. Somebody may read this and we, they may go, yes, that's the most important. We have to have a sincere faith. We teach doctrine and damn the canons. Uh, that's not what it says. A sincere faith is simply this. We believe the right things. We, found, we find a foundation upon which to stand. And then we share that faith with others in love. The challenge is the church gets sidetracked by human beings. <laughs> the church, humans, get sidetracked by other humans. We begin to love the things that are in the passions of our church, but we forget what, what church is about. Every church does. Humans tend to make things about themselves they find their own soapboxes, their own preferences, and they stand as tall as they can and proclaim what they deem to be most important. And sometimes they do it with such a lack of love. It's incredible, even in church. For the Ephesians, the conversations about spiritual things were driving them away from their love and devotion to the Lord. They love talking about God they just didn't love God. Isn't that weird? They're, this is ironic. Their conversations in church were causing them to love others less. Have you ever noticed how the church always struggles to stay on point? Love God, love others. It's not that hard, right? That's straight from Jesus. I stole that. Uh, you know, what is the greatest commandment? We love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, strength, like, uh, everything. And what's the second? The second is like it, that we love others as ourselves. All right, so that's, it's love God, love others. It's not that difficult. We make it difficult. As the culture changes, the world demands the church change with it. That it adopts their values, teaches its agenda, love what it loves. I had a conversation at the height of the BLM movement in my backyard with a pastor friend. We were sitting there and we were just shooting, shooting the breeze and we were talking about the BLM movement. And he said, Craig, you're missing it. If you're not marching with the BLM movement, if you're not taking part in the changes that are going on in culture today, the church, any church that doesn't participate in this is missing what God is doing. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that's just, Wackadoodle. The world will tell us what we love next. Wait five years, it'll be something else. Wait five more years, it'll be something else. Do you know the reason we love people whether, whatever color they are? Uh, yeah. God loves us and we're not his color. <laughs> we're not Jesus' color. Jesus was Jewish. Yeah. Do you know in Revelation, all tribes, all nations, every tongue, every language will bow before the Lord and they'll all sing the same songs of praise to God? I don't get on board with movements around me because if I have a problem loving people that are a different color than me, I don't need a movement from the culture to tell me how to fix that. I need a God who will speak to my heart to fix it for me. We don't follow the loves of the world or the passions that they're, or the latest train that they bought a ticket on. We follow what God says in his unchanging word. We follow what God asks us to do on a regular basis. Many pastors and churches feel the pressure to fall in line with all of these movements because they think it's a demonstration of love. Unfortunately, most of the time, there's always a hidden agenda and you get lost when you stop following God's reasons for doing things and start following organizations. This was happening in Timothy's day, in Ephesus. Look in verse six. Certain persons, by swerving from these, clear conscience, pure faith, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Don't you love that? 
Craig, I'd like to teach in the church. Oh, okay, why? I got something I'd like to say. <laughs> well, I don't know if that qualifies. When you lose this pure, good, and sincere passion for Jesus Christ, you can turn whatever you want into your personal project. The danger is <clears throat> some of these will take you into a different doctrine, which is another of a different kind. This, this is not out-and-out out false doctrine. This is like a tack-on that will start you down a road that takes you away from a pure heart and a sincere faith and a good conscience. This is a doctrine posing as the truth, but diametrically opposed to the main thing. You know, when Satan tempted Jesus, he didn't come up with some pr brilliant argument, right? Do you know when he tempted Jesus? you know what Satan used to tempt Jesus? La Biblia, the Bible. Satan knows the Bible better than you do. <laughs> it's kind of sad, isn't it? So Satan used the Bible to take down the Son of God. Jesus withstood the temptations. If Satan did that with Jesus, my, my guess is he does it in the church all the time. These are distractions every church struggles with. They're dressed up as good things from folks who sound like smart people. They turn God's church into a debating forum where they can stand up and prove to everybody how smart they are. And Paul charges Timothy, beware of these people because they sound smart, they look smart, but they are not preaching the gospel of God. And for goodness sakes, they don't have a lot of love. Paul lived in the group of social people before he came to love Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul was in this group, this group of Pharisees. Paul was trained to stand up and spew smart language with smart clothes in smart settings. In fact, he goes right there, down in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, listen to this, I was a what, church? I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Paul had all the pedigree of being the smartest guy in the room. Paul was raised to speak Bible, the language of the Old Testament. But Paul had no love for Jesus Christ. In fact, he hated Jesus Christ. And he hated the church. Paul is saying, I love it because he's putting himself in the guilty boat. Paul is admitting in his past life, he loved these soapboxes too, but he was dead wrong. And it wasn't until he fell in love with Jesus Christ that he realized how wrong he was. Paul's story of rescue is our story of rescue as well. God offers to use us to change the world with his love. Not with our smarts. <laughs> In fact, I love how Paul says it's better than what I say. Paul says, I've received mercy, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Paul knew what he had been saved from. He knew what he had been given. He knew God stopped him dead in his proud tracks knocked him off, took away his eyesight, if you know the story, and then broke through that wall of his heart. That's why he says next, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, verse 15, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I shine the brightest. How would you like for that to be your testimony? I was the worst of the worst of the worst. But it's interesting how if we forget what we've been saved from, how we forget about the love of God that broke through our buttress of lies, we become something that we shouldn't be to others. We forget what we've been given. We forget to be thankful. And the first thing that happens is pride brings a judgmental attitude. We sit in church like this. I love how he says it in verse 16. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, why did God save you? You had a lot to offer. <laughs> you had a good resume. God needed you. Couldn't go on without you. Seriously. If you know Christ as your Savior, why did God save you? Mercy. Mercy. Because you, like Paul, like me, were an insolent unbeliever. And we needed help. <laughs> the Bible called us dead in sins. And dead people, they don't do anything. But God, being rich in mercy, reached down and made us alive. There's no one too far beyond God's reach. And Paul knows this, and he says, God did this for me, and God still is doing it for others. Listen, church, I, I was talking to a good friend the other day. We were talking politics. This guy was so wrong on his politics. I was sitting there going, I can't even believe you're saying this right now. Like, you are so wrong on this. And we walked away, and guess what? We remain friends. Do you know why? Because his view and my view don't matter a whole lot unless we love one another. Love is the charge. You'll walk away with a stinking, frustrated heart that you can't get rid of, and it will turn you into a judgmental person if you lose the ability to love people that are different from you. And by the way, I didn't come up with that. <laughs> I'd steal everything from God. So here's the deal. God says, you love your friends? Bravo, good for you. Like even the pagans do that. Do you know Jesus said that? Even pagans do that. You know what the test of your faith is? Is if you can love your enemies. You don't like your wife? Yeah. Other people may not like her either. You don't like your husband? Yeah. Might be hard to, to not like. But you know what you're commanded to do? Love them. Can you believe God would command an emotion? Maybe love is not an emotion. Maybe love is an action. And maybe that's what we need to get back to in the church. We might think a little differently on politics, parenting, and potty training, pie preferences at potlucks, or any other pee you can throw in there but we are absolutely in agreement when it comes to the gospel. That is the foundational truth that brings us together as a family of God, and we love one another, foibles and all. So what? Can you believe we're at our so what's already? Uh, make it up for last week. Here we go. <laughs> Number one, correct theology means I can do nothing without a heart of gratitude to God. I need you to say this one with me because this really hurts. You ready? Here we go. Correct theology means I can do nothing without a heart of gratitude to God. You have good theology, it doesn't matter. If you have good theology but you don't love people, you have bad theology. Correct theology means nothing. If you're lost on this, just read the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 13, all right? I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have love. I am zip nada. If I give my body to the flames and go to, the, go to death for my testimony in Jesus, but I have not love, I am nada. It's kind of important. Don't be judgmental. Remember, you were in the same rebellious boat as others around you before God's mercy broke through your buttress of lies. The attitude is gratitude in the household of God. Number two, be painfully careful of who teaches and what is, te what is taught. Be painfully careful about who is teaching and what's being taught. Somebody may sound like the best teacher of all time, but brothers and sisters, if they have not loved, they should not be teaching in the church. Bottom line. They might have a pedigree that is unbelievable. They might have gone to the best seminaries. They may know scripture from the beginning to end, label passages, know the address of every verse of scripture, but if they don't have love, no teaching. James 3.1 actually warns us. It says, let not many of you desire to be teachers because those who teach will be held to a higher account. Those of us who teach will stand before God someday and give an account. 
This is why Paul said, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. We have to be very careful about who is teaching and what is being taught. So easy to get off on silly nonsense that distracts from the real task that God gives to us. The media does this all the time. They say, look over here while they do something over here. You ever wonder where your news comes from? A bunch of people sit in a room and determine what they're going to sell you. That's what you get as news. You will get news. You get somebody's definition of what they want to sell you, your product, and you're being bought. Politicians, look over here while we do something over here. What we do, we teach our church, because it's a main charge, we teach our church to a heart of love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. We are who we say we are. We have been entrusted with this gospel message. This is what Paul says to Timothy, and this is what Timothy passes on <clears throat> to us, according to the good, glorious gospel of the blessed God, verse 11, with which I have been entrusted. God has trusted you with the gospel. You are his chosen person. Not because you're smart or you're good looking or because of his mercy. He has protected the gospel. He has given it to you, trusting you to deliver it with a heart of love. Losing your drive for the gospel will cause you to lose your love for Jesus Christ. You will suffer a faith shipwreck. By the way, that's coming up in verse 19. I can't wait for you to hear it. And, uh, Andrew, actually, Andrew Palaginanos, how do you say his last name? Palaginino? How do you say his last name? Yeah, that's it. Andrew's going to be preaching in two weeks. Uh, he has great hair but a weird last name, and I can't wait for him to tell us what it means to suffer shipwreck with regard to our faith. Listen, it can happen to the best of us. It can happen because we're humans and we get off on stuff. We lose our awe of the gospel in the busyness of our lives. We lose our passion for Jesus when, when we learn even to love our churches. We have an irrational love for something from the past and don't realize that Jesus is still using the church. And it's not based on your whatever passion you have about the church. It's based on what he's doing through the church and the love that he's still showing through it. We can lose our love for God even when we're studying his word. One illustration that I heard from, uh, from uh, Swindoll <clears throat> uh, at, a, at a meeting, I, I, was, I was so impacted, I never forgot this illustration. Swindoll was a, a, you know, the leader of uh, Dallas Seminary and he got a letter from one of his students. Here's what it said. At this letter, after graduation, this guy wrote the letter. He said, while I was there, thank you, Pastor Swindoll. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for keeping the seminary open because while I was there, I learned Greek. I learned Hebrew. I exposited passage after passage. I read commentaries. I read insights of all kinds. And as I studied the text as a manual, I learned to love the Bible, but I stopped loving God. Scary, huh? Do you know how many people know the Bible in and out but don't have a passion for God? Which brings me to the third so what. Be vigilant about doctrine but be passionate about love for the sake of Jesus Christ. As we said at the beginning, when a congregation loves anything including their love for the Bible, their church building, their favorite songs, or even their pastor more than their love for Jesus and his mission, that church will fail. Just give it time. That church will fail. What is our God-given mission? It's the first charge. The aim of our charge is, all right, let's say it together. Here we go. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love for God, a love that is based on a pure heart. It's not something faked, a good conscience. I am a Jesus follower no matter where I am. And a sincere faith, when others see Jesus, they think of me. That's how sincere I am in my faith. I'm sad to tell you Ephesus did not stay on track. They did not. I don't know if Timothy dropped the ball. I don't know what happened. All I know is 40 years later, the same church is written to in the book of Revelation, and it wasn't good. In just 40 years... If you read the book of Ephesians, by the way, the whole first chapter is full of doctrine. 
It's full of powerful, deep doctrine. If you're a Calvinist, you eat up Ephesians 1. And Paul writes to them and goes, you guys at Ephesus, man, you got it going on. You know some serious stuff. You teach it and everybody knows it. Mm, way to go. Forty years later, they're written to again by John on the island of Patmos, banished for his ministry of the gospel. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even with all of these warnings that Timothy was given in 1 Timothy as he's pastoring this church, 40 years into the future, they still lost their way. Revelation 2.2 says this. I'm glad you're sitting down. This hurts. I know your works. Get it? I know your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you're reading this and you're going, seriously, that's pretty good. They, they, they're right on track. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostle and are not and have found them to be false. You're doing all the right things. I know you are enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary, verse 4 stinks. But I have this against you. You have abandoned, church, will you say this with me? You have abandoned the love you had at first. The very thing. The very thing, number one charge, Timothy, pastor of Ephesus, is given, they left behind. Why did they do it? I think they just loved doing church. And I think they forgot to love God. They kept doing what they did at first. They kept doing the ministries they did at first. Ephesus continued to grow. Did you know that? <laughs> Ephesus was like a mega church. But God would just say, I'd rather you not be around that crazy? They love their church more than they love Jesus. They love their DNA too much to examine it and say, is it getting in the way of what we should be doing? God gives them a cure, by the way. Verse 6, Revelation, or verse 5, Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know what that means? You can still do church there's just no power that's going to be there. Isn't that crazy? You can still do church. Have fun. It's just that there's nothing I'm going to do there. They were doing the works they did at first, just all for the wrong reasons, and so God would remove them and their influence from the world. I have seen churches die because they lose their way firsthand. <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> It's not pretty. People still love their church. They still love hanging out with each other. They do barbecues and they get together. They love being recognized on a regular basis. They love being recognized by the city. They just forget to love Jesus along the way. And it's evident because they don't love those around them. They love their groups. Just don't love others. And when a church starts dying like that, the churches try to hang on. They do their best to hang on. They tighten their grips around what they remember, their experiences from the past. They grip on so much, they eventually make it about keeping the building, keeping their positions, keeping their influences, keeping their money, keeping their traditions. Listen, I'm not talking to any one particular church. I have experienced this firsthand. <laughs> it is really sad to see. And it can happen to the nicest of people. When we don't keep our love for Jesus Christ first, the pillow becomes more important than the reason they have a pillow to begin with. It becomes about keeping this dirty, raggedy old pillow rather than having something comfortable and clean to lay your head on. So church, east, fellowship, what would you say your church is firm on? Preaching the truth holding to our history, running a powerful worship service, hanging on to truth in the face of changing culture. All these things are fine things. There's nothing wrong with any of them. But if you can't turn to the person next to you that just walked through the door, no matter what they smell like, look like, or ever you ever meet them before, and you can't love them because Jesus loves you, you're simply stop doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's not that difficult to figure out. If you make your part in church about anything but your love for Jesus and your love for others, you're doing church wrong, and you won't last.
Hard one to do, isn't it? I don't like doing that. I've been looking forward to doing this message, but it's a tough one to deliver. Let me say it for, one, for you one more time. 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of this charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this letter that you gave to the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of your Spirit who passed it on to Timothy, who passed it on to others and eventually lands in our lap today. May we have examined it with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So Lord, personally, I want to just lay myself bare here and just say, Father, if if I've made this about anything other than loving these people and loving this community, I pray that you'll fill in the gaps only the way that you can. It's not bad for us to just sit back and re-examine why we do what we do, and so I pray, pray, Father, that we've done that well today. And that if we need to just do a, a cleanup, an examination of ourselves, that you through your Holy Spirit would give us enough humble heart that we'd be able to do that honestly. Thank you for Fellowship Church and for just the history here. Oldest building in the community. I mean, it's oldest church. It's, it's quite a history that you've given to this church. Many people, shoulders on which this church stands. And I pray that they would do a good job of holding to love from a good conscience and a sincere faith. For Village Church East, as we have just celebrated five years this year, brand new, excited about what you have for us, help us to stay on course. May we never define our church as anything other than a church that just loves you and loves our community. And I pray that we would always be humble enough to sit back and say, are we still doing what you called us to do at first? Easy to get distracted. Easy to be manipulated by the lies of the evil one. Easy to be swayed by this culture, to put stickers on our doors and stuff on our bumpers that are just not the main thing. Help us remember to love one another with a pure heart, sincere faith, and a good conscience. May that be what describes our summer together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.